Go ahead and grab your Bibles and uh, open them up to Joshua chapter 24. The last chapter in the book of Joshua, and it is a powerful chapter. It is the final sermon or farewell speech that Joshua gives to the people of Israel before he dies. And you can imagine being such that it is filled with incredibly important truths and reminders for us. A godly Joshua, who has led the people for so long, has a final call for the people of God that we desperately need to hear this morning. Let's begin. Let's read the entire section, the entire chapter together, and then we'll dig into it. Beginning in verse 1, it reads this, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, He put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you. And I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over to the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for He is our God." But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witness witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve Him. And they said, we are witnesses. And he said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you, incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve, and His voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law, and he took a large stone and he set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timoth Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem. And the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had not been given him, which had been given him, excuse me, in the hill country of Ephraim. It's easy for us to, to find ourselves slipping into spiritual lulls, It's kind of like taking a break from going to the gym or a break from your diet. You know what I'm talking about, right? You can be going hard at it for a season and seeing great progress. You can make great gains maybe physically or in strength or maybe your goal is to lose weight and so you've trimmed down and then all of a sudden you decide, you know what, I'm going to take a little bit of a break. I'm going to take my foot off the gas. And all of a sudden you find yourself in a bit of a lull. And those gains that you made are easily lost. And the longer you remain in that kind of a rut, you know what I'm talking about, the harder it is to pull yourself out of it. You just keep saying, well, tomorrow I'll start again. Okay, then tomorrow comes. Okay, tomorrow I'll start again. And then tomorrow after tomorrow after tomorrow ends up to be maybe month after month or even year after year. This is true in the Christian life. The longer, listen, if you kind of slip yourself into cruise control, the longer you stay in cruise control, 
the greater the chance of you falling asleep at the wheel and crashing your spiritual car, so to speak. And the reality is, at some point, you you simply have to make a decision. When you find yourself in this kind of a place, in in a spiritual cruise control, or maybe you found yourself kind of, you know, moving backwards spiritually in your life, at some point, you have to make the decision and say, enough is enough. You have to drive the stake into the ground and say, today, something is going to change. You have to make that decision. Nobody can make it for you. You have to come to the place where you are willing to recommit yourself to the Lord, to get back to the things that will cause you to grow spiritually, to, to enjoy spiritual, the spiritual presence of God, and to find yourself experiencing spiritual success and effectiveness. And I think that's kind of what's happening right here in this chapter. From this point forward, Joshua is saying, listen, you need to drive a stake into the ground. You need to wake up, and you need to keep going and keep pressing on. You've been in the land a long time now. That's the reality for the people of Israel at this point in time. They've been there for a long time. They've been enjoying their inheritance. You know, they're starting to cultivate their own land. They've been living there with their families. And now it seems like Joshua rallies them together, and his concern is this. Listen, you could very easily get way too comfortable. You could become complacent thinking that you finally arrived. Isn't this true? We can do this in our own lives spiritually. We, we've made it. Look how far I've come. I think I deserve a bit of a break. Israel had conquered most of the land, but here's what Joshua wants to remind them of. The mission is not over. See, the mission wasn't simply about conquering the land. The land must be conquered so that the people could continue to serve the Lord with faithfulness. That's the idea. That's the mission. The mission is, listen, I'm giving you a land where I will dwell with you, where my worship will be the priority of your lives, where I will continue to be faithful to you, but where you must be continually faithful to me. You see, the mission is all about serving the Lord. And we can't let off the pedal when it comes to serving the Lord. We cannot lose sight of the greater mission. And this is the same with the church of Jesus Christ. We must stay committed to the Lord. We must be those consumed with committing ourselves to the Lord and serving the Lord and advancing the mission of God. So here's the question that I want to drive from this text. How do we stay committed to the Lord? How do we pull ourselves out of maybe the spiritual rut or spiritual complacency? How do we do as the New Testament says, wake up from our spiritual sleep? For the day of our salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Two things I want to draw out for you in this regard. How do we stay committed to the Lord? First, constantly rehearse God's commitment to you. You cannot think about staying committed to the Lord without first recalling how committed God has been to you. And I don't know if you noticed, but as we read these first 14, 13, 14 verses, here's what's taking place. This is a, a, by the way, this whole chapter is a covenant renewal ceremony. It's kind of a recommitment ceremony, if you will. 
And so what Joshua is first doing is he's reminding them uh, that, first of all, they're the covenant people of God, and as such, they have a covenant history with God. God has been faithful to them. He has made them His people. And, and I read this. I tried to emphasize this, but you, you can't miss it, can you? The emphasis on these first 13 verses is all about what God had done for His people, wasn't it? Look what I did. Look how I gave you. Look how I have blessed you. God is the main actor in this first section here. And what we see is that Yahweh is the God of covenant faithfulness. And if you're a part of God's people, you too have entered into this covenant with God, the new covenant. And so if you're a Christian, what is true of the Old Testament people of God in this regard is also true of you. There's a few things that we see. First of all, just notice this, God graciously chose you. If you're in Christ today, if you're a Christian, just you got to hear this. This is so awesome. God graciously chose you. And, and, and notice this in the first few verses there as he pulls all the people of Israel together. He reminds them of this reality. And he pulls them back into their history, the history of God's choosing. Choosing Verse 2, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then look at this, then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. This is so fascinating. This is the, the marvelous grace of God on full display, and it all begins with God's choosing of people who do not deserve it, people who aren't even seeking Him. Did you notice what He says there about Abraham? Abraham had a brother named Nahor. Notice this, both of them, along with their father, were not godly men. They, they weren't righteous men who were seeking God. What does it say about them? They were idol worshipers. They worshiped false gods. They were living, listen, for the passions of their flesh. They were living for the ways of this world. They were bowing the knee to, to gods that, listen, they had carved out with their own two hands. And God comes along and he sees them in the muck of their sin. And he reaches down and he looks at both Abraham and Nahor. Think about this. And he chooses Abraham. He just grabs him right out of his sinful idol worship. And I took him and I made his offspring many. This is such amazing grace. God did for Abraham what Abraham didn't deserve. And it's a reminder, listen, that when God chooses someone, it's not because they're, they're somehow worthier than someone else or more exceptional or valuable to God. It's because of God's good pleasure and love. And this is our story as well, church. We all, according to Paul in Ephesians 2, 3, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, here's the key phrase here, like the rest of mankind. That's who you were, that's who I was, and God graciously, listen, God graciously set his love and affection upon you. He saw you, and he sought you, he grabbed you, and he pulled you to himself. God chose you. That is awesome. 
Peter says it like this in 1 Peter 2, verse 9 and 10, and he ropes us back into the people of God here. He says, but you are a chosen race. He's speaking to the church. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Listen, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And not only does He choose you, listen to this, Christian, listen, not only does He choose you, He chooses the path that He wants to take you down. Do you realize that? Do you notice what it says here? You notice this? Esau, he gets his inheritance right away. He gives him a land, and then what does it say with Jacob? Well, we know this, right? Jacob and his sons are led off into Egypt. They don't get their inheritance yet. Instead, they get to go to Egypt for how long? 400 years, where they will be in bondage. And, and listen, they, they didn't really know what was happening at this time. They didn't quite understand it, many of them maybe, but perhaps some of them were able to reach back into the, the very Word of God, and, and maybe God had let them know that, listen, there, there is a purpose in this. There's a reason. I am sovereign over your, your choosing, over your salvation, but I'm also sovereign over the path I'm taking you down. It's going to be a hard path, but don't worry, I've got a plan. And we know this, we know this, that, that this had to happen so that the iniquity of the Amorites, that time of iniquity, could be fulfilled. And it's just such an incredible reminder, listen, that God will often, listen, He'll take you down a path of His own choosing. Sometimes we're in the dark. We don't understand what's going on, but here's what we need to understand. God is absolutely sovereign over the path He takes you down. All of the trials that you experience, listen, the loss of of a loved one, the cancer that you're having to be treated for, I mean, the trials that just will hit you out of the blue, God is sovereignly ordaining every moment every trial of your life, and one day, one day you will be able to, listen, it may not be till the day we get to glory in heaven, you will be able to look back and you will see the perfect plan of God. You'll see, God, I see now that it was necessary. I see why I had to go through that. I see what you were accomplishing, God, in your sovereign plan of redemption. God graciously chose you and he chose the path that you're on. Secondly, God graciously delivered you. You want to see his commitment to you? I mean, verse 5 through 7, I mean, this is incredible. Let me just rehearse what I did for you in Egypt, he says. The Lord your God will push them back before you. Excuse me, excuse me that was chapter 3. We already were there. We'll, we'll just stick with chapter 24 today. He says, and I sent you Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen of the Red Sea, and when they cried out to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. Your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. I mean, we know from the start of Exodus that their conditions seem beyond hope. They're living in bondage. No way out, humanly speaking. And then verse 5 just bursts into focus. I sent Moses and Aaron. I afflicted the Egyptians through the plagues. I brought you out of Egypt. And then he dramatically delivered the Israelites and destroyed the Egyptians, their great enemies, at the Red Sea. 
And he's appealing to what many of them had, had experienced. And he's essentially saying, look, you've seen how committed I have been to you. And Christian, how much more so is this true of us that God has graciously delivered us? The New Testament picks up on all of this Exodus imagery and, and being delivered from bondage. And it tells us that we actually, this side of the cross, have experienced the greatest exodus of all. That God, listen, through the gospel, has delivered us out of the bondage to sin. He, he has taken us, listen, from our love of sin, our commitment to sin, the bondage we experience by the power of sin, and He has delivered us through the blood of His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus was punished in our place. Jesus rose victorious over sin and the grave. And because we have faith in Him, we are liberated, we are delivered, and sin and Satan no longer have the power and authority over us that they once did. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The best words in the Bible right here, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Notice this next God graciously blesses you. He, he chose you, He delivered you, but He blesses you. And that's what He shows the people of God in verses 8 through 10. You shall cling to… No, man, I keep going back to chapter 23. And then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land. I destroyed them before you. And then He pulls them back into the book of Numbers. The, the, the fascinating story of the prophet Balaam, who was hired by the enemies of Israel to, to curse Israel. And what we see and we're reminded of here is that God graciously blesses us, His, His people, not just, listen, from the curses of sin does He liberate us, but He liberates us and He delivers us unto the very blessings of God. He brought us out of bondage and into freedom. He brought us out of the curse of sin into the blessings of salvation. The enemies of God had hired this false prophet, Balaam, to curse Israel. Multiple times, the king summoned Balaam and said, curse Israel, curse them so that we can have military success and victory over them. And Balaam was not allowed to even utter a curse against the people of God. This false prophet was deterred by God Himself and was forced by God to actually utter a blessing over the people of God because a blessing is what God has promised for His people. And this just shows, listen, the complete mastery of the God of Israel, of our God, over all the forces that would seek to harm God's people. It, it kind of reminds us, doesn't it, of, of Romans chapter 8, like, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And the New Testament makes it so clear that if you are in Christ, 
God has graciously blessed you with every blessing in Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There is nothing spiritually that God has not blessed you with already. And then lastly, God graciously promised you. God graciously promised you, if you're in Christ today, He's he's promised you a future. He's promised you a hope. He's promised you a home with Him. And that's what the book of Joshua has been about. He now turns the corner in, in here, and he points them to this reality. Look at where you are right now. You're in the land that I promised to give you. And he walks them through how how they went over the Jordan, they came to Jericho, and they had great victory as God fought for them. They conquered king after king, city after city. God gave them into their hand. He even sent the hornet before them. He drove out the people before them. And he reminds them, this was not by your sword or by your bow. This wasn't your military strength or prowess. This was all because of me. I gave you, verse 13, a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. I have promised you all these things. In fact, that's exactly what God promised them all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10 and 11. It says this, listen. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full. And here, what Joshua is saying, you see what God promised you all the way back then? He has been faithful. He has been committed to you from the very beginning. He has fulfilled His promises. And church, the promise of their inheritance points to the the promise of the greater inheritance that awaits all of God's children, that the land here isn't the final destination. There is a greater land that awaits the children of God. There is a final and fuller fulfillment, a place, listen, that we did not build, a place that that is rich. It's going to be flowing with milk and honey. It is going to be filled with the bounty of the Lord. And as we read from Revelation 21, and the presence of the Lord will be there with us. There is a place coming, a heavenly home. There is an inheritance, as Peter says, that is kept in heaven for us. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. And it awaits every one of God's children by the grace of God. And God is faithful And if you are his child, he will take you all the way home. This is God's commitment to you. And your story is no different than their story. This is our story. And this is our God. So what is then the proper response to God's grace and commitment to us? That's that's the question. If we see how committed God is to us, here's what we must do secondly. Cautiously renew your commitment to God. Cautiously renew your commitment to God. This is what God wants from from us. In light of all that He has done, there is a, a required response. 
And I, I want to emphasize here, you're like cautiously renew our commitment to God. What do you, like, why cautiously? I need to just emphasize here that there is caution required. Oftentimes when you, when you think, you know, we've all heard this. If, you're, if you grew up in the church, you've heard this multiple times, this idea of recommitting your life to Christ. And, you know, if you went to a Christian camp, you threw a stick in the fire. I know you did. One, you know, one night you threw that stick in and you recommitted your life to the Lord and like been there, done that. And listen, I'm not opposed to any of those things. In fact, I think even from this chapter, we see that there is a necessity, there is a requirement for us as the people of God to regularly recommit ourselves to the Lord. My concern is this, though. Oftentimes, when you think of a recommitment and and often being called to recommit, a lot of that is based on some kind of emotional manipulation. It's like seize the moment, it's playing off of your emotions, or or oftentimes it's 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 pressure, right? Peer pressure. Oh, look, stand up if you really love Jesus, and everybody, you know, and if you don't love Jesus, you're still in your seat. Like, I guess I better stand up too. All my friends threw a stick in the fire. I better throw a stick into the fire too. And you see, there's a danger in that. There's a danger in being emotionally manipulated or being peer pressured into recommitting your life to the Lord. That's not at all what God wants. He wants you to cautiously recommit yourself to Him, to be very careful on how you're proceeding with this. God is not interested in some kind of flippant or haphazard commitment to Him. That's what you need to hear. He is looking for us to be thoughtfully, prayerfully, and here's the word, wholeheartedly committed to Him. And so we need to proceed with caution here. And, and, and this is what Joshua actually calls the people of God. He's like, you can see there's some you know, caution signs flashing, and Joshua's like, look, I want you to recommit yourself to the Lord, but you need to just be warned here, and he warns them in two ways. First, he warns them, like he warns us, by calling us to consider the call. Like, consider what it is actually you are doing and what you're recommitting to. Verse 14, now therefore, he says, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. There it is, yeah, sincerity. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. You don't think it's a good idea to serve God of Israel, Yahweh God? Okay, well then choose your gods this day, make a decision whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The proper response, notice this, verses, verse 14, the first two words, okay? Now, therefore. The proper response, we saw this last week. This is kind of just, I know, we're repeating ourselves here, but this is important. The proper response to God's grace, to God's commitment to you, listen, is to respond with wholehearted commitment to God. To to forsake all other gods and to follow Him, the one true and living God. The call here, this is a passionate plea from Joshua to the people of God to exercise total commitment that leaves no room for half-hearted or partial commitment to God. Now, you all know those people, right? You, You know those people who never fully commit to anything? 
You know what I'm talking about. Like you invite them over or you try to arrange something with them and they're like, yeah, I should be able to be there. That's the response. Some of you are those people. Okay? Yeah, I should, I should be able to make it. They always, <laughs> you say, they always leave themselves a way out, right? Just in case maybe they don't feel like coming, just in case something better comes up. There's a world of difference between should and will. And there is no room, listen, for I should or maybe when it comes to commitment to God. God is not looking for some kind of superficial or sentimental commitment. He is looking for a firm, decisive commitment that declares like Joshua. And don't you love this? Joshua leading the way. He's not waiting for their response. He's not pressured into anything. He's making it clear from the get-go. Listen, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We are all in wholehearted, totally devoted, passionate in our worship and praise of the one true and living God who alone has chosen us, who alone has delivered us, who alone has blessed us, and who alone has promised us. There is no God like our God. We will serve the Lord. We will stay committed to Him. And I want you to see here that, that in order to understand what it means to be committed to the Lord, you have to get, grab this concept right here. Now, therefore, here it is. You can circle this in your Bible. Fear the Lord. This requires a true fear of the Lord in order to serve Him in sincerity and faithfulness. This sense of the fear of the Lord is missing from our lives today. This sense of the fear of the Lord is missing from our churches today, in, in our day and age. Author David Wells says this, he says, the modern church suffers from the weightlessness of God. Not that they're denying that God is all holy or, or He is to be feared, it's, it's more that His holiness and fear, is, it's weightless to us. It's like mist or smoke. There's a trend going on right now in, in evangelical Christianity. It's called deconstructing your faith. And a lot of uh, evangelicals, probably actually around my age, who grew up in the church, you know, in the 80s, 90s, and the early 2000s, they're, they're now having this crisis of faith, and this is what it's called. It's called deconstructing their faith. It's being pushed in evangelical circles, and by that simply, what, what, what they mean is this. You have a bunch of evangelicals or quasi-evangelicals who grew up in the church who are now disenfranchised with their faith. They were peddled something that they're now looking at and going like, I don't know if I really believe this anymore, and I need to deconstruct this to figure out, do I actually believe this? And what's happening is this. As they do that, what they're realizing is that they don't actually believe in the faith that they once professed to believe, and they have no desire to believe in this faith that they were once peddled. There is an interview with one young gentleman who was going through this process of deconstructing his faith, and when asked, like, why, why did, and by the way, in, in almost every case, what happens is the individuals actually abandon the faith, and they leave the church, and they prove that they were never really Christians at all. 
They were superficial. This is my point. They were superficial. They looked the part. They played the part. They acted the part in, in a variety of ways. But when it came down to it, what they realized at the end was that they weren't really followers of Jesus Christ. And one young man was asked, like, what, what caused this kind of crisis of faith where you decided to deconstruct your faith? And he said this. He said, honestly, the starting place for me was at a Coldplay concert. Some of you don't, you know, maybe <laughs> I'm dating myself here. Coldplay, a popular band, who are not anti-God, really, in, in their, their music, but he said, that, here's what he said, he said, I was at a Coldplay concert, and I had all the same feelings. I was experiencing all those same feelings at this Coldplay, people singing, and, and this heightened sense of euphoria, this, this wonder and this awe, I was experiencing all at this Coldplay concert, the same things that I was supposed to be and that I had been experiencing at church, and I thought to myself, if I'm experiencing the same thing here, what's the point of this? I read yesterday a church advertisement, and the advertisement online was this, come on out for incredible worship a timely message, a free barbecue. So it's good with me. But here is the, the tagline come on out for the experience. And you see, I think this is part of the problem. Churches often pitched as some kind of an emotional experience, not a holy encounter with the Almighty God who is to be feared and obeyed. We want to have high, and listen, I'm not opposed to emotions, and I understand that, that I'm not even opposed to the word experience, so don't hear me wrong on this. But if what's being offered is some kind of euphoric experience, every time you come to church, it's, it's this, this, this entertainment, and you come, and it's all about you, and, and we're going to entertain you so that you can somehow have an emotional reaction that's going to somehow stir your heart in a way, listen, in a way that is, that is unusual and abnormal. I just think, listen, that's fleeting. It's impossible to keep up, and to be perfectly frank with you, I don't believe it's actually biblical. I mean, tell that to the early church. You know what kind of experience with God they had? I mean, go read Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, who were supposed to be obeying the Lord and ended up lying to the Holy Spirit and were struck dead in the middle of the church service. How do you think everybody's experience with God went that morning? But you want to know what says happened as a result? The fear of the Lord gripped the hearts of the people of God and the people outside the church, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord that drives people to their knees. It's the fear of the Lord that compels you and me to go out into this world and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ regardless of the consequences. It's the fear of the Lord, listen, that grips our heart, and when nobody's around, we want to stay steadfast to the Lord. When nobody's around and every opportunity to sin presents itself, it's the fear of the Lord that grips our hearts in that moment because we know that God is present. We know that God is watching, and we know that God is worthy of all of our obedience, of our sincerity, and all of our faithfulness to Him. It's the fear of the Lord that is so often missing from our lives. And John Murray says it like this, the fear of God is the soul of godliness. It's the soul of godliness. 
And it is the fear of God that causes you to put away your idols. That's what He calls them to here. You can't serve two masters. Your allegiance can't be to these other gods. They they must only be to Yahweh God. So choose this day. Choose your God. And loved one, listen, if you want to renew your commitment to God, you must, you must forsake your commitment to false gods. False gods, listen, that easily and subtly creep into our lives, idols of our heart, things that grab our attention and our affection, things that we place as a higher priority above God. And the false gods in our, listen, we don't make idols necessarily out of wood and stone like some cultures do, but man, is our heart ever, as John Calvin says, an idol-making factory. We are so good at making idol after, we, we, we make comfort is a huge idol in North American culture. Independence, autonomy, huge idols. Entertainment is a massive idol in our culture and in so many of our lives. Money and power and pleasure, whatever is dominating, listen, your thoughts, your time, and very often your bank account. That's how you can track down your idols. And the call here is to be wholehearted in your commitment to the Lord. Nothing else will do. And so we must also, listen, because this is true and because the, the, the call is so high, listen, we must secondly count the cost. That's why you've got to be cautious. He gives them their final charge here in this section that we've read. And it's their final application, and, and the call is serve the Lord. And then this is awesome. He gets the response that every preacher dreams of. We heard your message, we heard the sermon, pastor, and we agree, and we will follow, we will do. Most pastors at this point would say, awesome, job done, let's go. Not Joshua. He challenges their commitment. You're like, Joshua, they just said they're going to be committed to the Lord. He goes, I know, I know what they said. I heard what they said. Look what he says in verse 19. Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord. <laughs> he explains what he means. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God, and He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Here's what He means by that. Of course, He forgives sins, but the idea is if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, if you choose other gods and not Him, He's not for, you're not forgiven. You're dead in your sins. You will pay for your sins. And you hear what he's saying? He's like, he is a holy and jealous God. God's not playing around. God's not messing around. He, he does not want your lip service. He wants your whole life surrender. That's what he's saying. He doesn't care what you say. He wants you to mean what you say from the depth of your soul. He pushes back on them. And so they keep pressing in in verse 21. They're like, no, we, we will. And so Joshua says, okay. And he says, you guys are witnesses to this. Hold them accountable. And then they get a stone, a kind of reminiscent of chapter 22. This stone will be a witness. It's going to remind us. It's going to declare we've committed to the Lord. We're driving a stake into the ground. 
And he challenges them after that even more. And you say, like, what was Joshua doing here? Listen, why was Joshua pushing back so hard? If you know anything about how Jesus operated, you won't be surprised by, by Joshua. Jesus pushed those who wanted to be his disciples away. You know that? He called people to come follow him, and then when they said, okay, Jesus, I'll follow you, he actually started to push them away. He did exactly what Joshua does. In fact, just listen to this. In, in Luke chapter 9, verse 58 and following, listen to what happens. It says, and Jesus said to him, some man comes to Jesus and says, I, I want to follow you. Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So you sure you want to follow me? I'm not offering a stay at the Hilton here. You sure you want to come along the ride for this? And the next verse, to another he said, follow me. But, but he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. You're, you're not to be caught up with worldly affairs anymore. Yet to another, I will, uh, he said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And you know what's happening in each of these scenarios? They're revealing where their heart really lies. The idols of their own heart, the things that matter more to them than Jesus. And Jesus isn't begging for followers. That's what you need to see. He's not begging for followers. He pushes back. Why? Because he isn't interested in lip service. He wants whole life surrender. That's what Jesus wants. And the church needs to stop thinking about people in the pews as consumers, and the church is offering some kind of product. Why? Because when you make a product too costly, people will simply go to the next store. We need to start treating people as sinners who need a savior, not consumers who need a product. And what you win them with is what you win them to. This is so helpful for your own evangelism, church. This is so important for your own evangelism. We're not enticing people to something in order to keep the demands on their life as low as possible. That's the way a lot of people peddle Christianity. Oh, it's, it's cheap grace. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to change your life. I mean, you just get basically a get-out-of-jail-free card. The biblical way of building the church is not by lowering the demands. It's by proclaiming the holiness of God and mercy of God and the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ who wants all of your life and will not settle for anything less. That is the biblical way to build a church. He wants sovereignty over everything, and if you are not willing to give it to him, he wants nothing to do with you for all of eternity. No exceptions, no bargaining, no bartering. And we need to not be afraid to push back against those who are coming into the kingdom of God and calling them to count the costs. If there is a resistance to complete submission to Jesus Christ, there is a very clear problem. And as Christians, listen, we need to regularly count the cost. We need to ask the question, am I getting spiritually sleepy? Have I traded commitment to God for commitment to idols? Is my passion for the Lord waning? Am I in a spiritual rut? If your answer today is yes, then here is the solution. Count the costs. 
Consider where you are actually bowing down to idols. Repent and return. And you want to know what you get by the when you when you preach a message like this with the lordship of Jesus Christ. You want to know what you get. You know you know what you get when you set the bar where the Bible does. You get Christians. That's what you get. You get genuine, faithful followers of Jesus Christ, true followers who worship God alone. And by the way, that is what must fill the church. And the church, I don't mean like if you're an unbeliever here today, or you're checking the church out. You're, I don't mean the church is a building. You're so welcome here. I mean the church in her membership, the church as a covenant community must be filled with genuine, regenerated Christians who love the Lord God above all things and who desire for Him to be on the throne in every single area of their lives. This is what it means to be the people of God. And he calls us to choose this day. Do you notice that? If it's not okay to serve God, if you find it evil to serve, choose this day. This is, this is the book of Revelation. Don't be hot or be hot, sorry, or be cold. Do not stand in the middle. There is no lukewarm Christianity. He will spit you out of his mouth. This is a call. This is a call to full commitment to the lordship of Jesus Christ. No more playing church. No more playing the part of a Christian. Get in or get out, the scripture says. And Christianity cares little for your comfort or your convenience. It demands all of you. The cross was not comfortable or convenient for Jesus, but it was necessary for our salvation. And that's what we will proclaim as a church. The church will be an inconvenience to you. It's going to infringe upon your life. Jesus is going to be an inconvenience in many ways. If you're living for this world, if you're living for the idols of your heart, Jesus is going to feel very much like an inconvenience to you. The church is going to be a source of inconvenience to you. It will infringe upon every area of your life. And our goal, listen, as a church, is not to make sure that church makes you feel comfortable. Our goal is to make sure that church pushes you towards Christ-likeness. We're calling for a higher commitment this year, calling you to prioritize the Lord in your personal life, in your personal walk, calling you to prioritize the church that he purchased with his own blood, to get all in on following Jesus, to make sacrifices, to be here with God's people on Sundays, to be at praise and prayer, to be in your small group faithfully, to serve one another in formal ways and in informal ways. So here is where we end this book, with the call to renew our commitment to the Lord. He stands before the people of God like I stand before you today in some regard, and he says, like I will say to you, choose this day whom you will serve. It's time to make a choice. God has committed himself to you. Will you renew your commitment to him? Today, this very moment, consider the call, count the costs, choose the commitment. Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, We will serve the Lord.